Superman is 80. Let that sink in for a moment. The Man of Steel, the Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton, is 80 years old. He's seen many changes in that time, from tirelessly representing the oppressed to keeper of the status quo, from icon to item of ridicule, from global brand to intimate stories, he straddled pop culture like a colossus, the first, the best. He's been the forefront of the debate and an outmoded relic of the past. He's even the basis of debates about fashion. But through it all, he shone like a beacon, the one all others aspire to be. None more than the other characters in the DC comic books. From a member of the Justice League to aspirational figure from afar, Superman has always played well with others, unless those others were wife-beaters or slumlords. I've spent many a show and a lot of my life, wasted or otherwise, reading and discussing Superman comics, so for this episode, I thought I would once again visit the Palace Video Vaults and check out some choice cuts from the back catalogue of Superman Adventures, where he works alongside others. This naturally led to the Justice League, a cartoon series from Bruce Tim nobody ever thought would happen. As with the cartoons produced by Tim, Batman and Superman the Animated Series, Justice League was thoughtfully written intelligently animated and well-produced. Tim juggled the large cast with precision and produced some wonderful shows. These, then, are the cream of the crop. Episode 37 and 38 of Justice League was A Better World. Probably one of the better episodes, A Better World was written by Stan Berkowitz and directed by Dan Reber. The opening is fantastic. We think we're watching a regular episode of Justice League, with the League going all out to stop President Lex in the White House, no less. This Lex is pretty unhinged, sorting through papers having brought the world to the brink of war. There are at least six different ways I can stop you right now. But they all involve deadly force, don't they? And you don't do that. No, you need me. You wouldn't be much of a hero without a villain. And you do love being a hero, don't you? The cheering children, the swooning women. You love it so much, it's made you my most reliable accomplice. Accomplice? What are you... You could have crushed me any time you wanted. And it wasn't the law or the will of the people that stopped you. It was your ego. Being a hero was too important to you. You're as much responsible for this as I am. So go ahead. Fix it somehow, put me on trial, lock me up, but I'll beat it. And then we'll start the whole thing all over again. I did love being a hero, but if this is where it leads, I'm done with it. Holy crap! Superman just fried Lex Luthor where he stood! The Batman is seemingly on Superman's side, and even Wonder Woman doesn't seem too upset about it. Roll credits!
Like other famous alternative world episodes, this respects the intelligence of its young audience, never really cluing them up on the developments until well into the story. But, as we find out post-credits, we are now two years later into a world where this action led to the Justice League essentially taking over the world. Superman even has the president answering to him. What's great about this is that the League aren't really that different. Despite the natty new costumes, they're still recognisable as the heroes we know and love, proving once again that all we need is one shove to make us into what we hate. On the face of it, the world is a better place. However, as the story progresses, we see that Superman isn't allowing democratic elections, and people are under a martial law as the Justice Lords prepare the Earth for what is to come. This is truly great stuff. Sure, the alternative world concept is pretty familiar to comic book fans raised on a diet of what-if and elseworlds, but the genius here is in not making this alternative Justice League moustache-twirling bad guys. Rather, they are the same people who made but one different choice. Of course, if they aren't bad guys, they are still the villains of the piece, and when the Batman learns of an alternate world where the Flash still lives, a casualty of war in the Justice Lords universe, he lures them into a trap. The redesigns of the costumes are also very effective. Mostly people dress the same, apart from Superman, who has adopted a black and white uniform, subtle, and Wonder Woman, who looks rather fetching with her Bob Hercut and Wonder Girl-like costume. The best example of the main differences between the two worlds is seen in how they treat the supervillain community. Doomsday arrives on our Earth, as our heroes are transported over to the other Earth where they are kept captive. So it's up to the alternative version of Superman to stop him, which he does by lobotomizing him. It's a truly amazing moment. We are so used to seeing Superman act and behave in certain ways that when something like this happens, it's a massive shock. But in a nod to how good the writing is here, we understand exactly why he did this. It's easy to see how the alternative Superman managed to achieve a world whereby people would follow him. There are an awful lot of people who would support Superman's decision here. The press and the bystands, for example, all fall over themselves to applaud this new Superman. But it's Lex Luthor who realises that this isn't the one true Man of Steel. With the League incapacitated, it would normally be up to the Batman to sort everything out. However, in this case, the Batman is trying to outwit the Batman. So it's up to the Flash to escape and rescue the rest of the League. Which he promptly does, because he's the Flash. The League are quite disgusted to then visit Arkham Asylum to see a very subdued Poison Ivy and the Joker, both lobotomised by Superman, which appears to be his go-to manoeuvre. With the League off sorting this mess out, Batman faces Batman in the Batcave. The two of them oddly reach an accord, and as they drive through the city later, the alternative Batman seems to be having second thoughts about how they've gone about things, when he witnesses a man being arrested simply for not paying his dining bill. Turning to the light, the alternative Batman sends the League back to our world, where they realise that to win, they may have to cross a line. There's a reason alternative world episodes tend to be loved by fans, be it Star Trek's Mirror Mirror, or Yesterday's Enterprise, or Buffy the Vampire Slayer's The Wish. Alternative worlds allow us to see different interpretations of the characters, where the behavioural patterns aren't quite as locked in. This freedom to do different things appeals to writers and actors, and allows them to have some fun. 
This story could have been a lot darker and bleaker than it is, but as usual for the Tim animated series, they managed to stay just the right side of the line. Most of the darkness of this story is implied and left off screen, but where I think it really succeeds is in not doing a riff on the evil twin gimmick and actually lets the characters be the characters, albeit with darker motivations. Throughout the episode we see glimpses that they aren't really all that happy with Superman's decisions, and that means that the Batman's turn at the end doesn't come out of left field. This is an absolutely cracking episode, affirming who Superman is and why he does what he does. The ending is particularly affecting. To stop the Justice Lords, Superman makes a deal with Lex Luthor. This sets the series up for future events. But also this story opens up a true can of worms about which Superman was right. Opening up the discussion like this puts the Justice League cartoons into a completely different league. Pun intended. Episode 45 and 46 was Hereafter, written by Dwayne McDuffie and directed by Butch Lukic. In this episode, a gathering of villains, including the Toyman, Livewire, the Weather Wizard, Kalibak and Metallo, sign a pact to become a sort of Superman Revenge Squad. It's quite a catchy name now that I think about it. And they vow to do in the Man of Steel for all the times he'd done them wrong. These were all villains that featured heavily in Superman the Animated Series, and this is their first appearance in this show. The Quintet start trashing Metropolis, but are a tad pissed off to be greeted not by Superman, but by the Justice League. A word here about the action sequences in this show. Tim and co excelled at the action sequences in all of the different shows, making them a true visual feast, but an overlooked aspect is the score. The musical accompaniment for these series is simply sublime. Anyway, Superman shows up to help stop Kalibak, but Toyman, of all people, has an ace up his sleeve, a kryptonite weapon of some kind that appears to disintegrate Superman. This scene is fantastic. The action pauses for a moment and the score drops out, only leaving the sound of raindrops and the stunned faces of the League, who simply cannot believe what they've just witnessed. Superman go bye-bye! This was a wonderful moment, as the viewer can't be sure if Wonder Woman is crying or if it's just the rain on her face. Stay back! It's full of acid! I'm playing games. What are you gonna do to me? I'm gonna punch a hole in your head. We don't do that to our enemies. Speak for yourself. I'm trying to speak for Superman. The League's reaction is beautifully written by Duffy. The Batman doesn't accept it, can't accept it. And due to this, he realizes that Superman isn't dead. This is Snapper Carr returning to our continuing coverage of the death of Superman. I'm here at First Metropolis Cathedral where just hours from now, services will be held for the world's greatest hero. In addition to friends, colleagues, and loved ones, 
Heads of state from over 400 countries are expected to attend today. In the streets of Metropolis, as in cities all over the world, thousands have gathered to pay their last respects to the Man of Steel. Our all-day live coverage will conclude following Superman's ceremonial interment later this evening. Afterwards, our panel of commentators and pundits will debate the question on everyone's lips. Without Superman, can there be a Justice League? Our coverage of the death of Superman will continue. The funeral itself is well done, but with a few oddities. Seeing Luther admit that he will miss in two as Lois breaks down was a lovely character beat, but the continuity nerd in me wondered how Jonathan and Martha Kent could be in attendance. It also appeared that Murray Jane Watson was there. Don't know how she got a pass over to the DC Universe. This episode is ticking along swimmingly, and then fucking Lobo shows up. I fucking hate Lobo. He was a one-note character in the comics, and he's a one-note character here. Sorry, Lobo fans, I never liked Lobo. To me, he was everything that was wrong with 90s comics, in that this arrogant cocksucker became a massive hit. He's a twat, and I hope he pisses off again real soon. With Superman gone, the quintet from earlier attack again, but with added Deadshot, which is great, as in complete contrast to Lobo, I quite like Deadshot. They've also added a few more members, and with only the Batman to stand before them, they achieve a quick victory. This doesn't really change when the rest of the League show up, until Lobo arrives. For part two, the story turns into a loose adaptation of a Silver Age story called Superman Under the Red Sun from Action Comics issue 300. Having been out of action for the last part of part one, Superman awakens on a far-off world under a blood-red sky. It's a really surreal landscape, as surrounding Superman are parts of where he came from, Cars cut in half, portions of trees, even a complete diner. Apparently all were transported to the same place as Superman. Superman decides he can't stay in one place, believing himself to have been transported with the rest of the League, and he sets about getting around. As we all know, under a red sun Superman loses his powers, and so he needs one of the cars to travel. He scopes around, choosing one that hasn't been cut in half and is slightly less beat up the others, and then siphons petrol from the other cars that are available to him. He's quite a clever bloke, is Superman. He quickly learns that this world is inhabited by non-too-pleasant creatures and must learn to fight to survive. I really liked this opening part of part two. It's not that the other parts were bad, but seeing Superman cope without his powers is always pretty cool. He's clearly not a vegetarian in this story, skinning for clothes and eating the carcass of one of the wolf creatures he finds, although he does befriend a pack of them, helping feed them. There's even a tragic element to it all. For the first part of part two, Superman follows the Justice League signal, thinking he's trapped on the same world as them. He tracks the signal down to the Justice League satellite, which, sad to report, is lying pitted and burned on the planet's surface, having crashed down from orbit. Superman is on Earth. A future Earth where we've gone all I am legend, and the only survivor is Vandal Savage. Your funeral was lovely. It was on all the networks. I used to have the DVD. I'm glad you enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, I did. But I've had 30,000 years to reconsider. It took you that long to figure out that you're a power-mad despot? It took me that long to figure out that my lust for power and control was meaningless. I don't know what kind of con you're trying to run on me, but you're wasting your time. I should never have done it. Done what? 
This. I destroyed the world. It was only a few months after you disappeared. I had just perfected an invention that gave me total control over gravity. I proclaimed myself master of the world. The Justice League would never have allowed that. True. They put up quite a fight. Green Lantern was the most difficult. I killed him right here. No. It was over there. In any case, I destroyed the entire Justice League that day. But that wasn't all. My newfound powers disrupted the gravitational balance of the entire solar system. This is the result. your skull. Go ahead. We both know it wouldn't work. What now? Lunch? From this point, it sadly becomes a bit predictable. Vandal has the knowledge to build a time machine, so you can pretty much guess where it's going to go from here. I don't even mean this as a criticism, as the writers have done such a good job with the rest of the story, that I'm more than willing to let a slightly obvious ending go, because, well, really, what else were they going to do? Superman can't stay dead, and the series can't carry on without him, so he has to get home somehow. And honestly, it's really not that big a deal, as it doesn't prevent this from being a really good Superman-centric episode. Savage sends Superman back into a time paradox. He tells Superman that he must stop him, Vandal Savage, from causing all this. But if he does, then Superman can never get back from the future to save the world, as the world won't need saving. So does that mean that Superman never dies? But he has to die, else he doesn't know to stop Savage. I like how Superman explains it. Man. You're alive! Are, Are you okay? I'm fine. Very glad to be home. Flash? <laughs> Something in my eyes. Yeah, tears. It's okay, man. We all feel the same way. Superman, how can you be... Alive? Toy Man sent me to the future. Then Vandal Savage and I fought some giant cockroaches and... It's complicated. Best of all, upon arriving back on Earth, Superman quickly tells Lobo to fuck off. The episode concludes in a quite sweet manner. Eschewing another fight with Savage, we return to the future to see a fully realised futuristic city appear around Vandal Savage. The Earth is saved, its future assured. Savage himself then disappears into another timeline. I suppose this wraps it all up nicely, time being a linear construct rather than alternative realities and such, and I reckon the writers just didn't want to get into any of that. Still, this was another really top-notch episode, utilising the League well while still making it a solid Superman story. Impressive when you realise he was burly in part one. Episode 47 and 48 was Wild Cards, written by Stan Verkovitz and Dwayne McDuffie, and directed by Butch Lukic. The Joker and Harley Quinn have planted a number of bombs around the country, leaving the Justice League to investigate. Of course, the Batman is the one to figure it all out, but the opening of this episode has some wonderful Superman moments. He and the Flash are sent to Vegas to prevent the first of the Joker's bombs from exploding. The Joker sicks the Royal Flush Gang on them. Yes, the Royal Flush Gang. Whilst the Royal Flush Gang are a magnificently silly concept, they aren't really any match for... Wait. What? 
The Royal Flush Gang win? They beat Superman and The Flash? Well, I did not see that coming. The rest of the Justice League arrive and Batman defuses the bomb as Hawkgirl, Green Lantern and John Johns take control. The Joker takes a moment to explain to the viewing audience who the Royal Flush Gang are. That's more like it. But I'll bet you folks at home are wondering who these wild cards are. Let's go up close and personal. The tale of the Royal Flush Gang begins in the Arizona desert at a secret facility where five innocent children were taken after being snatched from their families by the government. They promised to educate the kids, give them a home, but they wanted something in return because, you see, each of these kids was born with a mysterious power. Ten feels no pain. Literally. And he's every bit as strong as stupid man. King's a real ball of fire. Jack's just a flexible kind of guy. Very flexible. And Queen has a magnetic personality. That just leaves Ace. Poor lonely Ace. More on you later, my dear. The government said it was protecting them, but what it really wanted was to make them into human weapons. And they would have gotten away with it too, if not for me meddling with the kids. I made an arrangement with their headmaster. He seemed happy enough with it. And so did the kids. They were so grateful for their freedom, they've stuck to me like flypaper ever since. The playing card thing was something I thought of off the top of my head. It made them into one big happy family. The food's a lot better since we signed on with the J-Man. I like your style. Joker's a class act. Don't get me wrong, these guys give good backup, but they don't call me king for nothing. A real genius, that one. I am the most powerful, and... One of the most powerful. Why shouldn't I be in charge? Maybe I saw a bit of myself in their psychopathic little faces. How could I resist? Batman kind of succeeds in defusing the bomb, but realises they have been faked out. Superman uses his vision and hearing powers to reveal there are 25 bombs all over the city of Las Vegas, and the Justice League split up to work on all the other bombs. This is an episode that really shouldn't work as well as it does. 
The Joker has taken over TV studios before, both on TV and in the comics, but it's a real joy here to have him narrating the action. Mark Hamill returns as the Joker and delivers his really rather humorous dialogue with relish. As usual for casting director Andrea Romano, the voice acting is absolutely magnificent throughout. What I like about this one, and why it made the grade, despite not featuring Superman a lot, is that it does feature the entire core members of the team working together. Superman does get some great scenes though, such as finally having had enough of Jack's shit and punching him out. The headbutt is a nice touch as well. As mentioned, the Joker's dialogue manages to be functional, expositional and funny. But where this really scores is in the action. This is a great series of action set pieces from beginning to end. For a series normally as character driven as these were, this was such a change of pace and a wonderfully fast pace it was at that. That being said, even in an action fest like this one, character moments sneak in. Hot Girl and Green Lantern finally confess their feelings for each other to the point where she disobeys Batman to save his life. Batman manages to get under Harley's skin by pointing out that the Joker maybe had a bit of a thing with Ace, which plays into Mad Love, where Batman showed how great he could be at emotional manipulation. The setting of this episode is also interesting. Las Vegas is a very photogenic town, and putting a bunch of superheroes and supervillains there just adds to the colour of the place. However, the ending goes dark, as the Joker reveals that every single viewer, all 70 million of them, are going to be driven insane. My poor, poor AC. All your life, people have been recoiling in fear from you. Oh, can I relate? Maybe that's why I'm the only one who's never been scared of you. You see, Ace can send out thought waves that alter perception. But enough with the jargon. She can make you crazy just by looking at you. In person or on TV. Even as I speak, millions of you slack-jawed couch potatoes are losing your grip on reality. Which, in my opinion, is highly overrated anyway. But you can't look away, even though you know something's terribly wrong. And the best part? I'm immune to all this because I'm already crazy. Turn it up, baby. We need to fight. To fight. Yeah, but I can't. and millions of people are going to go and it's all because of you the best sidekick a homicidal maniac ever had what about me harley yeah harley you worthless two-timing piece wait wait we can't let everything we have be ruined by a silly misunderstanding and just what is it that i'm not understanding that we're two of a kind that you'll always come back to me. Yeah, I guess I do, don't I? But... Like the swallows in Capistrano. And there's one other thing you're not getting. What? That you led Batman right to my doorstep! <laughs> See, the Batman is a genius. Doing what he did was masterful and shows how understanding of the character Tim and co were. He isn't a god, 
he makes mistakes, but when written well, as here, he's very smart. Just like Hereafter, the show also takes a trip into the surreal, and the animation is more than up to the task. Batman fighting a mental battle as well as a physical one has again been done before, but this is very well executed and actually shows Batman being defeated. But of course, the Dark Knight has one more trick up his sleeve. Grabbing the mind-controlling device Ace's handler used, Ace turns on the Joker. The ending is positively chilling. Honestly, listen to the audio without the pictures and tell me that it isn't properly scurry. The tag scene, though, is really sweet, as Hawkgirl and Green Lantern share an intimate moment. This was a big deal, as it was the first time Hawkgirl's face was seen on the show. At the other end of the spectrum, this was the last time Mark Hamill and Arlene Sorkin would portray the Joker and Harley together in the DC animated universe, although the Batman Beyond movie Return of the Joker is chronologically set after this. It's a really dark place to leave the Clown Prince of Crime. The 61st episode of Justice League came from after the series was renamed Justice League Unlimited, and the episodes were no longer all two or three-part adventures. Ultimatum was written by James DeMatteis from a story by Dwayne McDuffie and directed by Joaquin Dos Santos. The season has also moved to a 16 by 9 format, making it look a tad more cinematic. There's also a new theme. Credits have a Space 1999 vibe to them, showing the audience clips of the upcoming show. Unlike when the producers revamped Batman, there doesn't seem to be many changes to the design of the characters. A bunch of lava men have been released from the ocean floor by an offshore oil rig on accident. The Justice League are struggling, but a team of kids called the Ultimen arrive, and the Justice League start feeling their age. The Ultimen's boss is Maxwell Lord, and he's pissing Superman off. It's really funny seeing Superman call other people corny. Batman believes that if Lord is involved, this can't be about helping people, but Wonder Woman thinks the kids are alright, if a bit wet behind the ears. She's particularly fond of one called Long Shadow, who she feels has potential. I haven't seen a lot of Justice League Unlimited. I managed to pick up the two-volume DVD set in Florida last year, although I've yet to watch them. I saw Justice League a lot when it was on Cartoon Network, but for some reason I missed it when it morphed into Unlimited. I didn't think this episode was as good as the two-part ones. The truncated running time didn't allow for as much interaction with the whole team, and the addition of five villains plus Lord, Bizarro and Giganta, as well as Amanda Waller, made this episode feel too crowded. It also felt more like a Wonder Woman episode than a Superman one, so maybe some of this is on me, as I should have done more Google Foo. Waller's involvement means this is all as sketchy as an artist's pad, and the Ultimen confront Maxwell Lord. You lied to us, Max. 
I was only trying to protect you from people who don't have your best interests at heart. I've always been on your side, and I promise I won't stop until... Spare us the performance. Water. Lion. Will it be Max, drowning on a rooftop, or eaten by a lion? Your... your artificial life forms, grown in a test tube, designed to be the ultimate superheroes. That's a lie. I remember my parents, how much they loved me. I was with my mother when she died, I... Implanted memories. But I spent Thanksgiving with my father. Actors, how long have we... You're just a little over a year old. The purpose of the Cadmus Project was to create a popular group of superheroes who are completely loyal to the government, unlike those loose cannons in the Justice League. And the clones? Replacements for when you wear out. Once they're complete, the clones will think they're you. They'll be you, and no one will be the wiser. How could you do this to us? <laughs> Me? This is so big, even my superiors are small fish. The Ultimen go a bit crazy, causing the League to become involved, but knowing the full story, the League vow to help them out. This is made difficult when the Ultimen decide to fight the Justice League, with only Long Shadow on their side. The episode wraps up with the Justice League versus the Ultimate, although the JL fight with Kid Gloves, as they know that their enemy aren't really responsible for their actions. As with Superman's line earlier about the Ultimen being corny, there's a nice play on Batman calling someone old chum, showing that the self-reflective wit this series always had is still present and correct, and it is a nice little morality tale. I just didn't think that it had the depth of storytelling of the two-parters I'd watched. There's even an element of Blade Runner in the subtext, but it's the face-to-face -face between Batman and Waller that makes the whole thing worth it. Who are you people? That's a national security matter. And if I were you, I wouldn't probe the situation too closely, rich boy. Let's hope the final episode I watched, episode 68, The Doomsday Sanction, is better. Written by Robert Goodman and Dwayne McDuffie and directed by Dan Reber, the Batman, finally having had enough of Amanda Waller, decides to confront her. Amanda Waller. Born in East St. Louis, Rhodes Scholar, PhD in political science, served in intelligence under three administrations, disappeared from public life four years ago. Am I supposed to be impressed? Maybe I should rattle off your resume now. You know, I could blow the whistle on you any time I want. Fine. Why don't we step into the light together? I'm sure the American people will be just as interested in your activities as mine. Secret weapons, illegal cloning experiments, bypassing Congress. What do you want? I want to know what you think you're doing. Did Superman ever mention that to get Luthor's pardon, he had to tell us about your parallel universe adventure? All about it? We started to wonder what would happen if you took the same action that the Justice Lords did, so I had my people run some computer simulations. If the Justice League ever went rogue, what do you think would be the result? That's moot. Humor me. In every single scenario, you beat us. Badly. But that was before Cadmus. Now we have the technology to defend ourselves. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. If we present a threat, 
You've got a spaceship floating over our heads with a laser weapon pointing down. In another dimension, seven of you overthrew the government and assassinated the president. We're the good guys, protecting our country from a very real threat. You. The League can't find any money trail to support Cadmus, leading them to believe that they are being bankrolled by presidential candidate Lex Luthor. What they don't know is that Cadmus have resurrected Doomsday following a better world. I really do like the continuity being used here. It's the best kind of continuity, building on story and character and not minutia. Nice jumping between the Justice League briefing and the Cadmus meeting, as the Batman starts to wonder if Cadmus has a point. Waller isn't above mucking with forces above her head, but fears Dr. Milo is not up to the task. Pissed off by Waller's dismissal, he plays with fire, also known as Doomsday. Milo gives Doomsday an update. Do you remember anything from before? That's alright. I'll show you. You've been used, and you deserve to know. You see, you were created from a sample of Superman's genetic material. But your DNA was altered to make you his superior. And then, you were trained to hate him. You were conditioned, humiliated, repeatedly injured. But not by Superman, by Amanda Waller and Professor Emil Hamilton. When you became uncontrollable, they tried to dispose of you. They put you in a rocket and shot you into space. But you were too strong. Your struggles threw the rocket off course. And it came back to Earth. When you landed, you fought a different Superman. One from a parallel universe. He lobotomized you. Superman. Yes, God. But he isn't your enemy. Your hatred of him was manufactured. At every turn, Waller and Hamilton abused and betrayed you, just as they betrayed me. Don't we both deserve retribution? Yes, release me. And you'll solve both our problems? Yes. going on? Ma'am, Doomsday's escaped. Milo, I'll have his hide for this. Doomsday beat you to it, ma'am. As befits the animated universe, the writers streamline Doomsday's origin significantly and mostly improve upon it. Besides, this is all a lead up to another Superman Doomsday fight, this time in the heart of a volcano. To Waller's credit, she's not too pleased about this, and the healthy dose of character is what sells a lot of these scripts. Waller and Batman are essentially played as wanting the same goal, although they both differ on how they want to go about doing it. The Doomsday Superman fight is fantastic, a really brutal knockdown with Superman cutting loose and twatting Doomsday. 
One of the big complaints about Superman Returns was that Superman didn't really punch anything, and I originally wondered where that came from. After all, the Reeve movies didn't really have a lot of punching either. But by the time Superman Returns rolled around, an entire generation of kids had grown up with this cartoon, and had become used to seeing Superman getting down and dirty, and as such, that film came off rather unspectacularly. As the plot proceeds, the Batman almost sacrifices his life to prevent a kryptonite-powered cruise missile from destroying the volcano, but Superman manages to emerge triumphant. The League elect to send Doomsday to the Phantom Zone, and it's now Batman's turn to be pissed off. You'll do anything to avoid monitor duty. Sent him off to the Phantom Zone, didn't you? He left us no choice. Spoken like a true Justice Lord. What? Come on! Passing judgment like gods, with our super-powered army and our orbiting death ray? Cadmus is right to be scared. The human race wouldn't stand a chance. We'd never go there. It isn't in our nature, and nothing can change that. Nothing? What if Luthor does become president, like he did in their world? What would stop you from doing what that Superman did? There's always that kryptonite you carry around. You don't get to joke! Not today. I just took a bullet for you. I'm sorry, Bruce. You're right. But you don't have to worry about the Justice League. Trust me. You know me. Yeah. I do. Get some rest. Honestly, I don't understand Batman's problem here. Whilst the Phantom Zone is pretty horrific, Doomsday is a killing machine, unstoppable and merciless. Sending him to the Phantom Zone is probably too good for him. All that being said, this ending is really good, very downbeat and provocative. Is Batman right? Will the League go too far? Does Waller have a point? All great dramatic questions that beg for a follow-up. And ultimately, this was a great way to celebrate the big guy's 80th. Digging into his background and looking up stuff I've never seen or read was a big part of Hey Kids comic celebration of Superman's 75th birthday five years ago, so this was a way to get back into that. Justice League Unlimited was, on the basis of these two episodes, just as good as all the others in the DC animated canon, and I think I'll be digging out those DVDs and watching a few more of these. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you... JLU cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. And we're back with email reading time. Now I ask for emails and you do deliver. Lovely listeners, this time I was inundated by people wishing to uh, to share their thoughts, which is lovely. Captain Scarlet Wired Paladin was from Jack Bone. Hello, Jack. Hello, Andy. Big fan of the Jerry Anderson shows. I remember watching UFO and Space 1999 around the time they were made, but not the Super Marionation shows. 
When they hit me, it was in the years after Star Wars, when every old sci-fi show was being dusted off and put back on television. The series were too short to run daily without quickly being exhausted, so episodes were combined and edited into fake movies and sold as a package. It might amuse you to hear that they altered Attack on Cloudbase to give the first Captain Scarlet movie an ending, not quite as dark as yours. After Cloudbase was turned into a skydiver, a dubbed-in Mysterium voice said, basically, now we're even, as the powers resorted everything to it what it was. Even without seeing the original version, this segment felt different, and Destiny Angel's face looked like she was contemplating these events, but she couldn't know about them. She was still in the desert, and the planes were just now spotting her. There was a second movie, an ever-popular midquel with the moon episodes. When I found the shows were on DVD, Captain Scarlet was the first one I watched to completion. I was suspecting there was no actual ending to the show and still wondered why, as by now a year-running length would be expected. From extras on the DVD, I gather that they published comic strips of the show. I suppose if these continued on past the shows themselves, that would be a reason for keeping the story open. There's also the disturbing thought of the War of Nerves having no foreseeable ending. After the story and the special effects extravaganza, my next favourite thing is that it was made with puppets. I love whenever the marionettes come to a doorway and the camera has to cut something else for a moment and then back to them on the other side. Cracks me up every time. But here's the thing, they do it every time. No one told the cameraman to film it so the top of the door is out of the frame so they wouldn't have to have one. It was always built like a real set for a real show. They didn't cut corners. Like the insert shots you mentioned of actors doing things the puppets couldn't. Think about that for a moment. They built full-size props and costumes that only get used for seconds at a time. Is there even 10 minutes of such footage across the whole series? City streets, country lanes and motorways are built to roll the fabulous vehicles along, sometimes not for a chase or crash, but just for a story beat or driving from here to there. I'd be willing to give them benefit of the doubt and say that the lack of traffic is just a blind spot from them concentrating so much on the heroes. Jack. Well... That's absolutely accurate. Yeah, I think the level of detail in the Anderson shows was uh, absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it was kind of being a little bit nitpicky. I loved Captain Scarlet. I hope that came through in the show. But I'm always amazed by the level of detail in the Anderson shows. I mean, you only have to look at the live action stuff like Space 1999. It's not a great show. You know, let's be honest. I love it, but it's not, you know... If you look at it objectively, it's not the best science fiction TV show ever made. It's not the best science fiction TV show Jerry Anderson ever made. But the the level of detail in the effects work, it pisses all over everything that the BBC were doing with Doctor Who and arguably anything American television was doing. I don't think the effects in Star Trek are as good as those in UFO and Space 1999. So I'm always impressed by uh, the level of detail in Anderson shows. Thank you for emailing it. Our next email is Luke Giaconetti. Spectrum is green. Captain Ander, earlier this week, I listened to your Captain Scarlet retrospective here at the Palace, and today I just finished watching the first episode of the series. Wow, I was familiar with Jerry and Silver Anderson's work from Thunderbirds, but this show is quite a bit different from the earlier effort, not only in its look and tone, but also in its focus on action, violence, and gunplay. Captain Scarlet is most definitely getting a spot in my rotation of special effects shows, and I am currently watching joining the lafty ranks of various Ultramen, Cayman Rider, and Super Sentai efforts, and I have to thank you for not only introducing me to the show, but also pointing to me where I could find it. 
Speaking of, I have long agreed with the theory that Anderson is to the West what Ijai Subururu was to the East in terms of model work and special effects television. What E.G. and his team were cranking out monsters on a weekly basis which would make the BBC team working on Doctor Who green with envy and red with embarrassment at the tiny budget used to achieve said monsters, Anderson's supermarionation techniques is really quite amazing when you get past the inherent oddity of using puppets and look at the technical merits. The puppetry in Captain Scarlet looks as fantastic today as it did some... 50 years ago, achieving subtlety, which is really quite astounding. The model work is also outstanding. Cloud base is minimalist and futurist. The Angel Squadron fighters are sleek and believable, and the Spectrum patrol cars are just silly enough in design that you can buy them in the science fiction setting. I personally really like the Spectrum helicopter, which is being controlled by the Mistrons. As I have said on Earth Destruction Directive, good plug Luke, helicopters are hard to do at scale because of the relative speed and weight of the helo versus a jet, but Anderson and his team do a good job of giving some heft and getting the rotors to move pretty quickly. And I'm a bit of a sucker for helicopters, which helps, naturally. It's bizarre to think about in these terms that both the Andersons and the Subaru Yosos are paradoxically both expensive and cheap at the same time. Cheap because they don't use well-known actors or any face actors at all in the Anderson series, but don't feature pricey location shooting or fancy film stock and equipment, but then again expensive as the superbly crafted models, effects and other technical aspects of the show require a lot of time and effort, which is alien to a more traditional show. So while more typical viewers see the shows as cheap fur, anyone who has an understanding of what exactly goes into creating a 30-minute special effects show can clearly see the many man-hours up on screen. One more note and I will sign off. A personal favourite Anderson reference is found in the show Mystery Science Theatre 3000. The two mole people who are seen occasionally as assistants to the mad scientists in Deep 13 are named Jerry and Sylvia, a clear nod to the Andersons. Which makes sense, as MST3K also features puppets, naturally, but also featured two Anderson movies on their first two regional episodes. Invaders from the Deep, compiled from Stingray, and Revenge of the Mistrons from Mars. These episodes were lost for many, many years, and only recently came available as bonus materials to backers of the MST3K revival Kickstarter, of which I was. So it makes sense for MST3K to show some love to the Andersons. Thanks for a great show, you keep making them, and I'll keep listening. Luke. Well, I'll keep making them. Until I drop down, obviously. Um, that's that's quite interesting. I did have a look on Netflix. Because Netflix has a number of mystery, of, uh, yeah, mystery Science Theatre episodes. And obviously those two weren't. Oh, now I obviously know why. I wouldn't mind checking out Tom Servo and Crow doing uh, a Captain Scarlet riff. My next email is from Andrew Morton. Hammond Horror. Hey Andy, a quick note on the Spider-Man TV series. When I was younger, we often rented the pilot movie, as it was, and as a younger, I really enjoyed it. The Spider-Sense was memorable, as were the fashion choices. I've never revisited the show, though, as I'd rather stick with my nostalgic memories than face the horrifying truth. The Hey Kids Comics Couch Potato episode only made that decision for me. Thanks for another great episode, Andrew Morton. P.S. You didn't make it sound as bad as the email title implies. I just could not resist the pun. And a very good pun it was, too. I'm a big fan of puns. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne emailed in. Hey there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. Puppetry madness. I'm playing catch-up and just listened to your Captain Scarlet episode. This is something I'm aware of really only as something referenced in other shows from time to time, but to hear about the actual thing is kind of fascinating. It's funny how much dark material could be snuck through under the guise of kids' entertainment. For me, it was Gargoyles that surprised me with this level of tragedy. I have never seen Gargoyles. I don't know if it wasn't shown over here or if that was around the time, like the mid mid to late 90s, early 2000s when I was having kids. So watching TV obviously 
becomes secondary. But uh, I, I do hear a lot of good things about Gargoyles, so it may be something I may have to check out. Nathaniel continues, Marionettes are something I take a technical interest in, but I'm really engaged by. I grew up on Henson puppetry, and the sense of life that's able to be brought by a hand puppet by a talented puppeteer is something I don't feel can be done with marionettes. But I still appreciate it as an impressive accomplishment, and was delighted to take in this episode. Keep them coming, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you very much, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's videos... Uh, on the Council of Geeks YouTube network, have recently done a top 10 episodes of Angel, which I saw just today as I record this and will be watching as soon as I'm done. Finally, today, Chris Franklin emailed in the amazing Hammond Man. And Chris said, hello, Andy. You know I have a soft spot for these 70s amazing Spider-Man TV series, so I was predisposed to love this episode, and I did. I can't say I know every episode backward and forward, but that incidental music has been playing in my head since the 70s as well. The compilation films got played a lot around here in the early to mid-80s on my favourite syndication channel, which helped reinforce that I had seen first run in the late 70s. I totally agree with you on the Spidey costume and great climbing effects. The costume's homemade look totally works for the character, and certainly makes more sense than Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield's million-dollar suits. Fred Waugh was probably in the suit far more than Hammond, and he never failed to actually bring the amazing to the show. But beside that, and my unapologetic love for it, the show is just kind of phoned in and cheap-looking. Even with the 70s, there's a lack of polish to it that stands out. Honestly, I feel the Captain America TV films look better. Yes, Red Brown is nowhere near as good an actor as Hammond, but the production values just seem more in the Incredible Hunk camp. And of course, the lack of motivation, angst, and the great Spidey supporting cast is very much felt. Still, I would buy an official DVD Blu-ray set tomorrow, and I need to join that Facebook group. Great show, as always, Chris. Thank you, Chris. I, too, would buy an official Blu-ray release of the series, because, well, we've got mug tattooed on our foreheads, haven't we? Uh, this episode is dedicated to Chris. I did have it planned long before Chris and Cindy started doing the JLU cast, but the way it's worked out is it's arrived after they've done that show. It was in no way an effort to rip them off or, or undercut them, and I did speak to Chris before I actually went ahead with it, even though I'd had partially written the show, and he was as gracious as he always is. But if you want to hear more about the Justice League cartoon, the JLU cast is on the Fire and Water network if you have anything to say about this or any other of the topics covered on the show i just want to email me about something you think i would be interested in you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and as ever this is a proud presentation of the two true freaks network and if you pop on over to the two true freaks.com site buy your shit through amazon click on the link we get a bit of a kickback which is always nice next time on a new episode of the palace of glittering delights i'm going to be returning to my first comic book love the ever amazing spider-man and looking at the recent marvel masterwork volume 19 which covers the return of the burglar saga if you're not bored of me, I am around on the Fantasticast with Stephen Lacey, where I cover the Fantastic Four comics from the beginning, and we're currently up to the 190s. So we're pretty soon going to be hitting the amazing 200th issue of Marvel's First Family. I also do Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast with my chums, Dr. Bill Robinson and Paul Spataro. That is also available on tutorfreaks.com. And Michael Bailey and I do the Overlooked Dark Knight, which covers Batman stories that we think have slipped through the cracks of time that is on fortressofbailitude.com 
If you want to hear any more of me, I have recently guest appeared on two Fire and Water Network shows. Rob Kelly and the aforementioned Chris Franklin were good enough to have me on the penultimate episode of Superman Movie Minute, where I'll be talking about the final five minutes of Superman the Movie with those two august gentlemen. And then Rob and I got together again to discuss the Marvel Treasury Edition number four, Conan the Barbarian. Please check both of those shows out and tell Rob you did it because I was on it. Um, You know, maybe that'll get me some kind of pay increase. I'll see you next time with some more Spider-Man comic book goodness. And remember, everything's going to be okay.